Welcome to Madison Labor Radio. Labor Radio is dedicated to bringing news, information, and cultural events focused on working people and the labor movement to the Madison area and surrounding communities. I am Matthew Thompson, a proud member of UE 1186. Thank you to all our listeners. Your support helps make Labor Radio and all the great programming on WART possible. Hi, I'm Ann Habel, a retired member of AFSCME 171, University Blue Collar Workers. Today, we take a look at what's next in UPS contract negotiations, get an update on IBW talks with MGE&E, get the background on how Governor Evers made a move that would support education in Wisconsin for centuries to come, and much more. And if you like what you hear, please consider becoming a sustaining supporter of WORT and Labor Radio. Talks between the International Brotherhood of Teamsters and UPS broke down on Wednesday with both sides claiming that the other refused to continue negotiating. 97% of members authorized a strike in a vote last month, strengthening the hand of the Teamsters at the bargaining table. This report is based on multiple news sources and includes audio from Teamster Union Chief Sean O'Brien at a July 1st press conference. Neither side wants to blink in this hugely consequential standoff between UPS and the Teamsters, who represent over 340,000 UPS workers, the largest private sector union in the United States. The current contract expires on July 31st, and the union has said they will not negotiate beyond that date. Here is an excerpt of Teamsters President Sean O'Brien speaking to the press on July 1st. Without a ratified contract, meaning subject to the approval of our 340,000 members, we will not be working. So UPS has two choices to make. They can either go down one road where they want to reward our members who have made them the success they are today, concede to our demands and give us what we deserve, and we will go out there and ratify this agreement. Or they can take the other road where they don't concede to our demands. They stay loyal to Wall Street and forget about Main Street. And if they do that, they are making a choice, a choice to strike themselves, where we will put 340,000 strong Teamsters on the streets till we get what we want, and then UPS will be responsible for stopping supply chain solution through this company. The first road, they can be the model of what it means to be a good employer, what it means to reward the people that have made them a success. You know, UPS is putting out some propaganda that the average UPS driver makes $93,000 per year and $50,000 in benefits. But they don't tell you the other story where the majority of their employees are part-timers, single mothers, single parents, working four in the morning till eight in the morning. We have part-timers throughout this country that are on food stamps, that are on subsidized housing. Some are homeless. This day and age when we have companies as profitable, they need to reward their people, and we are not going to stop till we get the contract that we deserve for our 340,000 members. A strike of this magnitude could potentially shut down supply chains, resulting in negative economic consequences throughout the United States, and could strengthen competitors such as FedEx. 
as well as cause severe economic harm to UPS. UPS share prices have fallen by 2%, with the threat of a potential strike looming. The Teamsters want to show strength and power by achieving significant gains in this high-profile arena with the hope that other workers throughout the country will want that same clout with their employers. Think Amazon. Reports indicate that the primary sticking points are economic as all of the other issues have been resolved. Stay tuned as this is a big stake standoff and anything could happen. This is Janine Ramsey reporting for Labor Radio. At broadcast time, there is still no settlement of the UPS-IBT contract. Outstanding issues remain uh, wages, especially for part-time workers, as well as language to provide long-serving part-time workers the ability to move to full-time jobs. Madison Gas and Electric and the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers Local 2304 are in negotiations. Carol Waddell spoke with business agent Nate Rasmussen about the progress. As you know, Labor Radio wants to know what the heck is going on with Madison Gas and Electric um, negotiations. First off, IBEW Local 2304 represents uh, most all of the field staff at MG&E. Um, almost everyone driving the white and green trucks are Local 2304 members, um, from linemen to gas workers, meters, meter techs, uh, dispatchers, power plant employees, mechanics, storeroom personnel, etc., um, so uh, IB, IBW 2304 is the folks that keep the lights on and the gas flowing in our community. So, um, you know, for decades we've been pretty fortunate to have a, a skilled workforce uh, and, and dedicated workforce um, that uh, we get out of bed at all hours, including, uh, you know, weekends, holidays, during terrible weather to make sure the community can flip a switch and have the lights on, come on or, you know, turn your gas stove on and be able to cook. Are you currently operating or working within the time frame of the current contract, and, and how long have, have you been negotiating about this? Yeah, so we started uh, negotiating in March. The contract was set to expire May 1. Um, we're actually working under an extension right now, um, and that's set to expire on Monday. So we'll be at the table on Monday, and uh, discuss a possible extension again. For our listeners who might not know how people end up working for MGNE, how does the how does the training go? What does a, a person coming out of school what the, what what kind of training do they get? Oftentimes, we hire people out of uh, like a, a tech school, and then they come into MGNE and we'll start an apprenticeship, a state indentured apprenticeship, um, and those are typically five years. We say that uh, five years you're able to do everything on your own, but um, to be really well-rounded, it oftentimes takes a little more than that because you're seeing different things every day, and, and like I said, it's a, it can be a dangerous job, so um, it's important to have uh, people with that tenure, especially, to look out for each other and train each other and uh, work together out there. I know you're past your deadline, so what pressure can you exert uh, to make this complete? Are you just uh, uh, the powers of persuasion? Yeah, we're past our, you know, when we would like to be done with this, our uh, contract uh, expiration date. So the union uh, went to MGE with like kind of a non, no nonsense approach, and we said, you know, both parties have a lot of things that they want to work out, but 
we need to get this thing done and, and get back to work. So um, what we what we proposed was getting down to the nuts and bolts, and that's retirement, uh, health care, and wages. And um, mg e was agreeable to that. So we brought a, a package together that, that we thought could get everything done. mg e was still upset that we didn't include some of their other proposals, even though they said they were okay with it. So uh, we proposed, you know, what would get us back somewhere competitive with the rest of the industry as far as wages and retirement go and catch us up with the inflation and cost of living that we've seen in the last handful of years. You know, that a dollar doesn't go as far as it used to coming off a five-year contract. So MG&E found our proposal to be more or less outrageous and uh, we wasted a whole session uh, with them telling that to us and didn't even get a response back. So we're back at the table Monday, hoping to get a response. Um, I think your initial question was, what what are we doing? Um, so we've had a, a few weeks here, and, and we're actually coming up with a slogan contest amongst our members. You know, it could be a solidarity slogan or something. Uh, how we're feeling, MG&E is treating our our members, um, and then we can use that slogan for you know banners, maybe picket signs, um, whatever else we think might be the right use for it we're also well we're, we're engaging in a couple other things with, uh, with our membership i think uh for community members if they're looking to support us um obviously if they see the white and green trucks um and it's safe to do so you know let us know that you support us i think that uh community support will go a long way if people are interested you know they could call mg and e and uh ask for a CEO or general counsel. They may not get there, but uh, let them know that uh, it's time to, to get a deal that works for the people living in the community who provide the gas and electric to the community. That was Carol Weidel reporting for Labor Radio. It may be July and summertime in Madison, but multiple unions are engaged in contract negotiations. The Office Professional Employees International Union, OPEIU, Local 39, and True Stage, formerly CUNA Mutual Group, have been in negotiations for over a year. The union has gone on strike and filed unfair labor practice charges. As of now, management has not made substantive uh, contract proposals according to the union. UFCW, United Food and Commercial Workers, Local 1473, and workers at Madison Sourdough are also in negotiations for a new contract. On the other hand, IBEW, Local 494, and the Collectivo Coffee Chain have reached agreement on a new contract covering 600 workers in Chicago, Madison, and Milwaukee. It is the largest unionized coffee chain in the U.S. People moving out, people moving in, why? Because of the color of the skin. Run, 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 but you sure can't. 
Is Starbucks management abandoning the LGBTQIA plus community? Starbucks workers nationwide have organized strikes, and in Madison, two stores struck on Saturday. Greg Jabowski has more. Over a period of nine days during the past two weeks, an estimated 3,500 Starbucks workers at over 150 stores nationwide went on a strike, the largest strike in the history of the coffee store giant, according to Starbucks Workers United. This was an unfair labor practice strike, with the union charging Starbucks with refusing to negotiate in good faith with its newly unionized stores. However, a clear mobilizing impetus for the strike was what the union has called the, quote, hypocritical treatment of LGBTQIA plus workers unquote, by Starbucks management. In Madison, unionized stores on State Street and Capitol Square struck last Saturday. In a statement announcing the Madison strike, Starbucks Workers United wrote, quote, Starbucks claims to be a company that cares about its LGBTQIA plus workers. Yet in reality, they are tokenizing workers for good press and higher profits. Workers are fighting back against Starbucks' performative allyship, unquote. Matt Cartwright, a shift supervisor and union organizer who works at the State Street shop, was one of Saturday's strikers and describes what happened. We joined a national strike by Starbucks Workers United called Strike with Pride. I think Saturday went very, very well. So we started with a picket line at both stores at 7 a.m., both at the Capitol and down at State Street. And at about 10.30, we had a little gathering in front of State Street. And then we marched up State Street to the farmer's market, in which we engaged in a combined picket at the Capitol Square location until 1 p.m. The strike was endorsed by the AFL-CIO and its affiliate here, the South Central Federation of Labor. Barbara Smith, a member of the Wisconsin Professional Employees Council, AFT Local 4848, was one of the organized labor and community members there in solidarity. She described what she saw on Saturday. It was actually really fun and colorful and spirited, and we got to hear from the workers themselves. They were able to speak directly to the press and to passers-by and to anybody who was curious. And it was a real show of force that stores can't operate without the workers, and the workers decided that they needed to take some time off of work to explain how strongly they feel that the management shouldn't be telling them to take down the pride decorations. Cartwright gave some background to management moves that helped lead to Saturday's action, which he feels to be tied to the unionizing drive. Specifically, Starbucks likes to exploit their queer workers, but doesn't actually really offer them much support, and in many cases has hindered them. For instance, we had a healthcare benefit which would help with uh, gender affirmation surgery for trans workers, and they have slowly been whittling that away, trying to get rid of it entirely, yet while they're trying to claim to be a very progressive company. However, as was reached in national news, which affected us here, at State Street and at Cap Square was Starbucks began to take down Pride decorations during Pride Month across the country, specifically targeting unionized stores. You know, they're coming in and they're targeting these unionized stores and they're taking down their decorations specifically. And so it was a strike over that. That was something that really helped energize us too into saying, you know, this is something we need to strike over. Cartwright describes what he heard a Starbucks manager say for why Pride decorations came down. Now, their reasoning that they were given that they gave to us was basically they were told, well, you know, Starbucks is supposed to be a third place. It's supposed to be welcoming, and pride flags aren't exactly welcoming for everyone now, are they? That's a direct quote that I was given. Pride flags aren't welcoming to everyone. So that was the reason we were given. And other stores across the country were given other reasons, such as, you know, maybe it's a safety concern. Maybe they're worried that there might be a threat for having pride decorations up. Although in the same, same breath, they also said, well, there's been no credible threats. 
Saturday strike resonated with the Madison public, says Cartwright. A lot of people, when we were talking to them at the farmer's market, do you want to know why Starbucks workers are on strike? And initially they'd be kind of like, oh, you know, it's just something going on here. But when we'd say, do you want to know how Starbucks treats its queer workers? That's something they wanted to know. Because this is a really big, important issue, I think, for a lot of people, especially in the current times we live in, where, you know, there's this increasing tide of anti-democratic and queer-hating forces gathering. That a lot of people care about this issue. And what we want as workers at Starbucks, I think what a lot of people want is to see Starbucks actually take a stand against those forces and to take a side, basically. That was Matt Cartwright, a Starbucks worker and organizer for Starbucks Workers United. For Labor Radio, I'm Greg Jabosky. Alders approved Juneteenth as a paid holiday for all workers, omitting the UW hospital. Efforts are underway to encourage private sector employers to recognize Juneteenth as a paid holiday. Currently, the city recognizes Juneteenth as a paid holiday for city employees, just as the federal government recognizes Juneteenth as a federal holiday for federal employees. The situation may change, at least in Madison. Alder Latimer Burris, with the strong support of Colin Gillis of the SCIU Nurses Union, sponsored a resolution encouraging Dane County employers to accept Juneteenth as a paid holiday. On June 21st, NAACP President Greg Jones testified before the City Council's Economic Development Committee in support of the resolution. He discussed the reasoning behind the motion to make Juneteenth a paid holiday. In order to make Juneteenth an acceptable, promotable national holiday for everywhere, all employers need to be involved, not just uh, public employees, but private employees. So part of the conversation uh, that I held with the members of the council that night was for all employers to not only commit to being a paid holiday, but to make Juneteenth the freedom day that it was supposed to be when, when it was first initiated and when we first, we Black Americans being, began to first celebrate it, we need all employees to be involved, including the private sector. President Jones went on to explain the importance of Juneteenth to the Black community and to our entire society. Why it's important, it is a day uh, it's synonymous to other national holidays and should be recognized as such. But more importantly, it was the one national holiday where everyone should be excited about the end of slavery. The most horrific national consequence in this country was slavery. And to now recognize the end of it, engage in it, and, and uh, be a part of the momentum building around Juneteenth is, in my opinion, a necessary ingredient moving the country forward. Jones discussed the long journey towards recognition of Juneteenth beyond the black community. Well, I think part of the uh, the broader and growing recognition is really based on the uh, awareness, understanding, uh, and momentum behind it. And as you know, there have been very few people who pushed this idea of Juneteenth. As a black kid growing up in Mississippi, back in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, it was it was my mother who told me about this historical event. And then it was in the school books that I learned about the, 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 uh, the concept of Juneteenth. So part of it is that we still have a lot of people who have no idea that Juneteenth exists, what the historical significance is, and then beyond historical significance, the practicality of it and the elimination uh, and what it means to the elimination of slavery. And the, uh, just one other element of contextual uh, reality is uh, simply this, that when certain individuals in our country, African-Americans primarily, took it upon themselves to begin to say, this is a historical significant moment. We want to make that day 
precious. We want to make that day important to everybody, not just us. And there have been people who've who've engaged in campaigns and parades and in walks just to do that. But the fact is that we still have a lot to do to educate and inform generations of people about it. Jones went on to say that one of the best ways to inform people is through the workforce. If the workforce is aware of it, understand it, committed to it, engage in it, participate in it, uh, take advantage of it, and more importantly than, than, than just celebrating a paid holiday and institutionalizing that day as a commitment, a reflection, a reflection point to engage in your, your industry's mission. Juneteenth can't be successful unless all of us are engaged in some facet of it. Freedom Day is every day. Juneteenth was one day in history, but its effect, its purpose, and its mission should carry through every day of the year. That was Greg Jones, president of the Dane County NAACP, describing his testimony before the City Council's Economic Development Committee in support of making Juneteenth a paid holiday. I am Frank Emsbach from Madison Labor Radio. The Occupational Safety and Health Administration launched an investigation into a northern Wisconsin sawmill after a fatal accident involving a teenage employee. Labor Radio has more. A Wisconsin teen's recent death while working at a logging company is bringing renewed attention to the state's efforts to roll back child labor protections. On June 29th, a 16-year-old employed by Florence Hardwoods sustained serious injuries at work, according to the Florence County Sheriff's Office. First taken to the Marshfield Medical Center, Dickinson, the teen was then transferred to Milwaukee Children's Hospital. On July 1st, they were pronounced dead. The Occupational Safety and Health Administration investigated the incident and made a referral to the U.S. Department of Labor's Wage and Hour Division. Under current Wisconsin law, minors are prevented from holding a number of occupations related to logging, including working in sawmills, felling timber, and using chainsaws. Between 2018 and 2022, child labor complaints in Wisconsin quadrupled, according to Wisconsin Public Radio while federal complaints increased by 69% during that same period. In the past two years, 14 states have introduced bills seeking to roll back anti-child labor laws, including Wisconsin. Quote, The trend reflects a coordinated multi-industry push to expand employer access to low-wage labor and weaken state child labor laws in ways that contradict federal protections according to an article by the Economic Policy Institute, which recently released a report on the trend. Quote, and the recent uptick in state legislative activity is linked to longer-term industry-backed goals to rewrite federal child labor laws and other worker protections for the whole country. Information used in this report was gathered from Wisconsin Public Radio and the Economic Policy Institute. Reporting for Labor Radio, this is Sean Hagerup. be able to stay home, brother. You will not be able to plug in, turn on, and cop out. You will not be able to lose yourself on Skag and skip out for beer during commercials because the revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be brought to you by Xerox and Four Parts without... 
In the accumulation of a months-long organizing effort, resident physicians at Loma Linda University Health voted to unionize on June 22nd. The historic vote is the latest chapter in the most prominent recent showdown between a Seventh-day Adventist healthcare institution and organized labor. According to the National Labor Relations Board, which held the election, the final margin was 361 in favor of joining the Union of American Physicians and Dentists and 144 against. Approximately two-thirds of the 805 eligible resident physicians submitted a ballot. We won, the resident organizing committee wrote on Instagram. After years of hard work, we finally did it. Thanks to side for this information. Governor Tony Evers signed the biennial state budget into law on Wednesday, employing a creative tactic to alter the bill's contents. Labor Radio has the story. 51. That is the total number of partial vetoes Tony Evers issued just prior to signing Wisconsin's 2023 to 2025 budget into law this week. Sitting in front of attendees at the budget's signing ceremony on Wednesday, the governor said that the bill contains, quote, a lot of wins. Major changes from the governor's vetoes include gutting a Republican tax cut that would mostly benefit top earners and cost the state over $3 billion, as well as preserving some diversity and equity positions at the University of Wisconsin that had been slated for elimination. One veto in particular, however, is grabbing headlines above the rest. With a strike through the number 20 and a hyphen, Evers extended budget increases for Wisconsin's public schools from its original end date of 2025 to the year 2425, a date over four centuries in the future. Evers, a former state education secretary and teacher, had proposed allowing revenue limits to increase with inflation. Under his veto, unless it's undone by a future legislator and governor, Evers said schools will have, quote, predictable long-term spending authority. The deployment of the partial veto, particularly on the state budget, is not unprecedented for Wisconsin's governors. Republican Governor Tommy Thompson holds the record for most partial vetoes, with 457 in 1991. Nor is deploying the line item veto unprecedented for Evers himself. During the 2019-2021 budget cycle, Evers used those powers to increase the amount of funding for public K-12 schooling by $65 million above what was approved by legislators, which prompted an unsuccessful push in the Republican-controlled assembly to have the governor's partial veto power curbed entirely. The scope and longevity enacted by Evers' most recent use of the partial veto, however, surpasses all others during his tenure. Understandably, educators are pleased with the governor's move. The Wisconsin Education Association Council, or WEAC, has weighed in on Evers' decision, with WEAC President Peggy Wirtz Olson commenting, quote, Guaranteeing minimum increases for public school districts is a game-changer for Wisconsin public schools. Wirtz Olson continued by saying, quote, The governor took the budget that came out of the Joint Finance Committee and improved it. The governor has put educators in a better position to continue improving public schools and the lives of our students. Overriding the governor's veto now would require a two-thirds majority vote in both houses of the legislature. Republicans fall short of the required supermajority in the assembly, and procuring the requisite Democratic votes seems unlikely. Majority Leader Robin Voss would therefore most likely need to schedule a vote at a time when Democratic absences were high and Republican absences were non-existent. 
Looking at the historical record reveals the futility of this position. According to the state AFL-CIO, the last time a legislature was able to override a governor's veto on the budget was 1985. Reporting for Labor Radio, this is Sean Hagerup. The Unity Picnic is back. The Urban League of Madison invites community members to a free, family-friendly celebration picnic on Saturday, July 22nd from 1 to 5 p.m. outside the Goodman Library at 2222 South Park Street in Madison. Enjoy delicious food, live music, and fun activities. That's the Urban League Unity Picnic on July 22nd from 1 to 5 p.m. at the Goodman Library. Thanks for listening to Madison Labor Radio. I'm Matthew Thompson. Thanks to editor Frank Imsbach, assistant Robert uh, Robin G., Reporters Greg Jabowski, Sean Hagrup, Gene Ramsey, Carol Wydell, and Damage Control Specialist Joanne Powers. Special thanks to Keith Steffen, our reader coordinator, web poster on you, Lee, and to all our readers and the members of IBEW Local 2304, WORT Staff Collective. And I'm Ann Habel. We'd also like to thank all of the generous contributors to Labor Radio and WORT. Please stay tuned for the Blues Cruise with Dave Watts and Professor Bill Clark. <laughs>